Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from TSCR in Sydney on Gadigal lands of Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey, the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology, Sydney, and my producer today is Anthony Dockrell. Coming up on this edition of the Fourth Estate, we are taking an in-depth look at one of the success stories of journalism, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. To do that, I am blessed to have with me its director, Gerard Ryle, who is an Australian with an Irish, slight Irish accent or an Irishman with a very large Australian one. You can decide that, that later. Um, this show isn't long enough to talk about journalism. Uh, Jared's many accolades, uh, but here's a potted history. I've lost count of how many Walkleys, how many? Mm, five. Five Walkleys. Uh, this year's Australian Press Council's Press Freedom Medal, um, a share of a Pulitzer, uh, an Emmy, uh, three George Polk Awards uh, in the US, and, and an honorary doctorate to boot. He's been named one of the world's top 100 information heroes by Reporters Without Borders, and on top of all of that, he's a nice guy, and I can safely say that having worked with him for many years. So my first question, Jared, is how can a nice guy like you be a hard-nosed investigative reporter? Well, I guess there are different sides of every person. And um, when you are working, you become a kind of a different person, I think. Um, and you realize that if you don't ask hard questions, you're not going to get the kind of answers that you need. Mm. Um, and if you're an investigative reporter, of course, it's all about asking questions. Were you always thus? You know, as a kid, were you the kid who always asks, you know, <laughs> where's the butter? Where's the jam? Where does this come from? Was this a sort of a... Oh, not really, no. But I, I think I, what I really don't like is hypocrisy. And when I see hypocrisy, it really gets me angry. And I guess I also have a, a background that um, allows me to see I I things in a certain way. You know, I kind of grew up in a very strange environment where we, um, when I was young, I was in Northern Ireland and we sort of left Northern Ireland and went down to South, you know, kind of went from one world into another and kind of, you know, it was a, a strange experience for me. So, mm. yeah. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to the book on that one. <laughs> Let's talk about the ICIJ, uh, which is, of course, most famous for the Panama Papers and then the Paradise Papers. And these are massive data leaks which have exposed global networks of money laundering, fraud, tax evasion, and all sorts of wrongdoings at the senior levels of government and business across the world. Uh, maybe you should remind the listeners, though, about the Panama Papers and what it's achieved to date. Yeah, look, the Panama Papers was a, a cache of documents from a law firm in Panama called Mossack Fonseca. And uh, someone calling himself John Doe, who was this anonymous person, had somehow copied 40 years of records from this firm. Uh, every client file, every email um, every correspondent, every email, everything basically for 40 years. So it was a it was a unique insight into how the world of offshore works. Mm. And the the one thing that offshore, the one product it has is secrecy. And here you were able to see inside a secret world that no one had ever really seen before. Now, the documents were obtained by one of our media partners, two journalists from the Süddeutsche Zeitung newspaper in Germany. Mm. And um, in all, there were about 11.5 million documents. Oh, that's a shed load of... Yeah, work. How many terabytes, roughly? Oh, terabytes, I don't know. I mean, right. it, 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 on a scale, you, it was the biggest leak in history, basically. Yes. It was about a thousand times bigger than the what original What year is Wikileaks. this? When is this? 
We got the documents in 2015 and we published in 2016. So it took a whole year for us to go through the documents. And we didn't get them all together. I mean, we only had, I say only, we only had a million documents at the beginning. So the first call I got from Bastian Obermeyer, the, the journalist involved, um, he had a million documents and there were some interesting names in it. And he rang me from Munich and was trying to convince me to do this as an ICIJ project. And what, did he say, what, did he, what was his opening pitch? Jared, I've got these documents. Well, there was a little bit of a history to it there. We'd been work, working on offshore projects um, for a number of years. This was actually the sixth project we were going to take on. We had done five others, and they'd mm. been progressively getting bigger and bigger. Right. And as part of that world of looking at offshore, we'd actually come across Mossack Fonseca in our previous in inquiries. Right. And we knew that they had really interesting clients like Mugabe and Gaddafi and people like that. Mm. And again, they would just pop up over and over again. So we had been looking at them. So when Bastian rang, it was it was like he was saying, here, we have more information right, on this right, company. Right. Okay. And and in fact, we have something new. We have, we have a million new documents. Can you come and see them? And then the next lot came in as well. Well, what happened then? You jumped on a plane and went and saw them. Well, I went over to Munich because I figured I had to. I looked at the documents and we spent three days together sort of secretly looking at them in a hotel room and at the Sudaichi Saitong offices and kind of realized that this was going to be a little bit different to anything we'd done before. Um, we could see, for instance, uh, prime ministers. We could see mafia figures from Russia in there. We could see people that were clearly of public interest because the first thing we have to do is establish public interest of course, yeah. uh, because you're getting anonymous documents from somebody you don't know where they're coming from, you don't know what the agenda is. So mm -hmm. you have a, a kind of a higher criteria that you have to apply to these things. You've got to establish public interest at the beginning. Because you didn't know and you still don't know who John Doe. No, no one's ever found out who John Doe is. The only person mm. who's ever contacted John Doe is, um, is Bastian. Mm. So, and they were communicating through the secure channel. Right. Um, and we, we quickly found out too that these documents had been offered to other media right. and they had been knocked back. And why? Why would they be knocked back? I don't know. There were some of the, I would say, two of the biggest newspapers in the world had been approached separately. I'm not going to say who they are. say who they are. But but so no, these two but, uh, rather large newspapers yeah. have been. And but they, in fairness, to the reporters too. I mean, the, I can see why they would have said no because there was every reason to suspect that that there was a, a real agenda here that that they were trying to. Because I think the reason they were approached for particular reasons. Um, you know, for instance, in America, there was an ongoing court case going on involving a hedge fund that was suing Argentina for what was basically debt. Right. And, 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 and I would imagine that the first reporter who got a hold of this or at least was contacted by John Doe would have thought, hey, it must be somebody from the hedge fund. It must be a private investigator. Because that was all through the initial bunch of documents? or, or? It was through the original, yeah, the original right. million that, that, that right. Bastian got a hold of. Oh, right. There was in there, there was quite a lot of material about Related this particular, this. yeah, about oh, Argentina actually yeah. and about the, the current president at the time of Argentina and the person who was about to be elected right. president. So, of course, when we finally published the Panama Papers, there was a lot of documents, but there wasn't anything that really sort of um, uh, confirmed you know, the original suspicion that this was some sort of scam by Argentina to avoid debt. Mm. So tell us how the ICI, tell us, remind us how the ICIJ works. Because you, So you've got this, you've got Sebastian calling you, three days in a Munich hotel room in, in the newspaper office, and then what? 
Well, the first thing I had to do at that point was convince their boss to make this an ICIJ project. So I sat down with Wolfgang Kroc, who was the editor-in-chief of Süddeutsche Zeitung. And, of course, he was excited that his reporters had these documents and wanted it to be a German story and wanted it to be a Süddeutsche mm. Zeitung story. Understandable. And so the first big you know, first big negotiation I had was sitting down with him and saying, we can do it bigger and better if you turn it over to ICIJ. And and then he sort of imposed some deadlines on us. Um, this was in April, I think, in 2015, and he wanted the story out you know, like every editor, and I will remind you, when you were an editor, you were the same, you is that they wanted the, the story weekend. right away. Yeah. Yes. yeah, And so you had to negotiate a kind of a longer time frame. We negotiated, I think, September initially, right. September that year, which gave me six months. So just again, remind us, how did, what was the pitch? Because I, what does ICIJ bring? Yeah, ICIJ, yeah, ICIJ should go back and explain. Yeah. We're, so we're a non-profit. We're based in Washington, D.C. And what we do is we bring investigative reporters from around the world together to work on projects together. And we're funded um, basically through charity. And the way we work is we what we actually try and do is find a great story and then parlay the, the story for resources from various media partners. So we will go to The Guardian or we'll go to Sudoche Zeitung, as we have done in the past, which is how they knew us. Mm-hmm. And we will say, here's a great story for you, but in return, you've got to give me some of your reporters to work mm-hmm. on our team for sometimes up to a year. And then they work in a collaborative way with yeah. reporters across the world. Which yeah, you, we you yeah, we sort of we we've been pioneers in 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 technology. So we basically use technology in a way it hasn't been used before in journalism. So we build online forums for the journalists to come together. So we have a kind of an online newsroom where the journalists, when they go to their physical newsrooms, they also go to the ICIJ newsroom. Right, and you can see everyone who's there. There might be. 20 or 30 reporters or 100 reporters there at the time and you can communicate securely with them on this forum and you can also share tips and findings and other things um, when we get a document set like the Panama Papers which as I say was 11 and a half million documents we had to make a way of of basically making all of the documents searchable mm. for the journalists so we used you know we put everything up on the cloud we make sure it's secure and then we give everyone passwords to getting in so they can search every document if they want to. You can't just go to a German reporter and say, here are 10 German names and here are 20 documents related to that. You have to say, here's everything. Go for, you know, go for it. Um, so and, in the two yeah. years or so since it uh, was published, Panama Papers, what is the toll, as it were? What's the... Oh, we could probably spend the next 10 minutes talking about that. But, I mean, we brought down the, immediately, we brought down the government of Iceland. Mm -hmm. A year later, we brought down the government of Pakistan. Um, There have been uh, a number of people who have gone to jail, quite a number. Mossack Fonseca, the firm at the center of all this, is now closed. They had Mm -hmm. to close all their offices around the world. Governments, including here in Australia, have recovered nearly a billion dollars mm. in taxes. Do they give you 10% of that? <laughs> no, I wish they would. That's all fine to speak. Yeah, well, one thing we can't do is take government money. So that even if they were offering, we couldn't take it. Yes. But, but you know, I mean, you even saw a story in today's Sydney Morning Herald talking about another $14 million that they that they claim is uh, owed by one person here in Sydney. Mm. And they only found out about it through our our work. Is that because the... How does that work? Because the Panama Papers... Does it get open up further, or I mean, can I go and have a, a no, stroll we, through it now? We we're very clear in that we we're not an agency of government, so we don't give the documents. We've no. been no, bombarded did, by governments so, for these documents. So how do they get to? 
Well, what we we have done, we've one of the things we do for the journalists is we use technology to allow them to look at these documents in a very in different ways. And one of the technologies we use is, a, is one called Neo4j, which allows us to put all of the names of the addresses and the offshore companies into nodes. So it's like nodal technology. Okay, and that and allows so you, you to look. Yeah, it basically allows you to look at very complex um, scenarios. Mm. I'll, I'll give you one case in the Panama Papers. We found when we were researching, we come across a number of names in relation to FIFA, which is the world um, mm. soccer body, because at the time the FBI began indicting people at, uh, at FIFA. And we started running those names through the documents. And we found that we had a lot more information than the FBI. And we were able to... By turning everything into nodal technology, we were able to show that these very complex nodes all went back to one law firm. And by researching that law firm, we found somebody who was sitting on the FIFA Ethics Committee, who was the person who was setting up the offshore accounts for the people being indicted. So we had a very good story. and We would never have been able to get that story if we hadn't used this technology, because the journalists wouldn't have been able to go through the millions of documents. But once they knew that you know, node A went down to node Z, mm. they were able to then work backwards and, mm. and, and, and mm. sort of get the evidence that we needed to publish a story. Do you have to be a particular type of journal for this work? Yeah, I find that we're, you know, the people we work with tend to be, yeah, they're just very dogged. They're mm. happy to look at documents. I mean, you know, people see the success of Panama Papers, but they don't see the pain behind no, it. I mean, there's a lot of hours of pain. A lot of, and <laughs> even, you know, even convincing newspapers and TV stations to go with this was, was also quite difficult. Mm. I can tell you right up to the very end, we were trying to convince some of the biggest media in America to go with it. And, you know, and they were saying no. And that's an interesting sort of wrinkle in this. In Is that about the journalistic culture, which is because what you're offering is this massive collaboration and journalistic culture, as you well know, as in, in the way you used to work in a way, uh, very much an individualistic kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's very much the, yeah, I mean, we're all kind of, when we're investigative reporters, you're kind of lone wolves. Mm. So what you're asking these reporters to do is to throw out everything they've ever learned yes. and start again. Um, when we're building the collaborations, we're quite careful to build that each organization gets a scoop itself. So we right. try not to put um, two newspapers that are rivals together, although mm. sometimes we do. Um, and so when you work with us, you do end up with a scoop yourself. So... Yeah. When the Guardian talks about Panama Papers, they talk about it as a Guardian story. Yes. And they're very clear about that over and over again. And that's why that's why this works, because everyone can own the story. When we won the Pulitzer for it, everyone who worked on that team was able to say, <laughs> or at least claim that they'd won a Pulitzer, which is what you want. Was that the yeah. true of the Emmy as well? It's the same. We won the <laughs> Emmy with the with the uh, with sixty minutes. Sixty minutes sort of, US, right? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. And mm. it was um, yeah. Everyone, everyone who worked on that, of course, claims it, and that's fair enough. And that's why it works, I think, because you're able to give the journalists a number of different things. First of all, you're able to bring them together so they can learn from each other. Mm. And believe me, I've learned an awful lot from working with these journalists. They are very good, and they all bring something to the table. But you're able to also give them another world because most of them have, they've won all the walkies in their own countries. They've done everything they can do in their own space. And so this gives them another level to play at. Gives them the planet. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And so they, and they really learned, you know, they, they're all friends now. They all talk to each other. Mm. They swap ideas. You know, that's why I got a call from Bastian's first thing because he had seen it working. And so when he got the first set of documents, he immediately, his first thought was, let's make this an ICIJ project, not a Sudarcha Zeitung project. 
Yes, it's called amplification in other parts of the sort of in the corporate sector, for <laughs> yeah. instance. Is the massive amplification of the work of journalists. Yeah, it's like when we did a, a previous story called LuxLeaks, which was about Luxembourg. Um, mm. That story had been done, I think, by the BBC in a smaller scale and it had been done in France on a smaller scale. And so when we were trying to get media partners involved in that, they were saying, oh, we're not really sure done. this is going to work. Yeah, right. But when we published, it was, as The Guardian now called the ICIJ effect, it really took over Europe and really put Luxembourg as a tax haven on the on the agenda of Europe. And they've mm. been there at the time, of course, the, um, you know. Yes, you know, I I'm hear you. I hear you. So what does this success, this kind of approach say about perhaps the future of journalism? I mean, is, it, is this kind of one of the models that we... We can look at, or can, it, or is this sort of, if you like, a high watermark? I'm, I'm, I'm always intrigued by that. I think it's only it doesn't work for every story, and I think that's what mm. you've got to be careful. You can't say this is the perfect model for journalism going forward. No. I think the reason it works is for for two reasons. I mean, I think it's because we have technology now that allows us to communicate in a way we weren't able to communicate. We have technology that allows us to. Um, get documents and parse them and make sense of them in a way that we couldn't have done that 10, 20 years ago. But also I think that the, it's the decline of the business model in journalism mm. that is allowing this to happen because media companies that in the past would never have dreamt of collaborating because they were so strong and big themselves are now willing to listen to new ways of doing things. And that has allowed us to come along, I guess, at the right time with the right projects but, you know, you're only as good as, as, as your last project or your next project. So. Well, we'll get to your yeah. next project yeah. in a minute. But um, just talk a bit broadly about journalism because you spend a lot of time traveling the world. You have probably, I was going to say unique, but certainly if not unique, a rare insight into the state of journalism in many parts of the world. Do you think, and this is a very broad question, so excuse me, but do you think journalism is winning and, or losing the battle against, for instance, things like censorship by governments and attempting to stop what it does, in fact, attempting to stop what uh, ICIJ has done, for instance? I think it's winning and losing. It just depends on certain countries. I mean, the media is suffering in most countries, but then you've got a few exceptions like India where it's booming mm -hmm. and where new models are taking off and people are doing things in a very you know, innovative and unique way. You've got um, organizations like ours. You've got also got an organization in France called Mediapart, mm. which is a totally investigative... Great story last is, week. Yeah, absolutely fantastic, you mm. know. Um, you've got, you know, I think there were some instances, for instance, where we collaborated, where we were able to get stories out that wouldn't have been able to get out if we didn't have, you know, we didn't do it. There was one country in particular, which I won't say, where the journalists who were investigating the Panama Papers found a great story in their own country, but would not be able to publish it in their country. So they gave it to us at ICIJ and we published it. And then they ended up reporting on their own story. But that way they were able to get it out. Mm -hmm. And there okay. was another example where we had... Um, the owners of one of the newspapers that we were um, collaborating with were in the documents and they were refusing to run the story. <laughs> Wonder and why. It, yeah. <laughs> and so at, as ICIJ, we, we said, look, if you don't run it, we're going to run it. Yes. So they ended up running it on the front page. About their own. About their own story, yeah. So that was sort of like tax evasion in their own company. Um, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it was very embarrassing for them, but they ran it. They ran it on the front page. Well, okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, in, in all this sort of, how do you think, I mean, I'm getting a bit, localized here, but how do you think Australia figures in all this? I think it still has to catch up a little bit. I think you're seeing more collaborations here. Obviously, I think you see Fairfax and the ABC working well, together. We used to see it. 
Well, I think they're still they're still people can see journalists can at least see the value in this because they're getting mm. twice the audience for their stories, so they love it. Um, but whether or not the rest of the media has caught on, uh, you know, the business model here, you know, we will argue very strongly that ICIJ is good for business because when we publish, say, Le Mans, for instance, one of our stories, I think they their circulation went up thirty percent. Um, when we publish. Um, there is a scramble to to buy the news organizations or the TV stations or whatever. There's, the audience goes up, so there is a there is a business proposition here. I don't think that Australia is really realised. Um, Why do you think that that's the case? I think it's just the isolation. You know, it, it's it's been it's been small, different. Pl- small, large island on a small population. Also, a long way from anywhere. but also a little bit. Really? Um, you know, feel like they don't need it. Whereas, you know, it's a bit like the attitudes of some of the bigger newspapers that we first dealt with when we were mm. first queuing up to try and get them to buy into this, is what's in it for them? They, don't, they can't see. Well, I guess the obvious question to ask is, do you think that's a function of the domination of, you know, a very few media big players in this country? It is. And it's also, you know, I guess it's also a bit of a cultural thing in journalism and that we still haven't. You know, we still haven't. We're, we're just so isolated from the rest of the world here. But there's no excuse for that, right? I mean, we there shouldn't be the, an excuse. The, the net yeah. has freed us yeah. Yeah. to be collaborating with people on anywhere in the world. Yeah, but you've also got unique rules here that that do apply. I mean, the 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 libel laws here are very mm. restrictive, even compared to Britain. Um, even mm. in Britain now, you have like a, you have a certain defences that aren't available here yeah. in Australia. You've got to have very deep pockets in Australia to be a media publisher. It's not not necessarily the same case everywhere else. So you actually have staff here, a small number of staff, but you publish out of the US, is that? We yeah, we publish out of the US. We have got people in seven different countries at the moment. Right. Um, we have a little office in Paris, um, a little office here. Uh, we've got people in Germany and England. Costa How many Rica. staff all up? At the moment, right now, because we're getting ready for publication, I've got thirty-five people. Right. Oh, okay. And we have. It just depends. I mean, that's. That's the IJ, ICIJ input, but then we would have reporters from um, or media organizations at the same time. So with Panama Papers, we had 400 reporters working with us. We were paying for about 20 of them. Yeah, I mean, that's also a very clever part of your business model. <laughs> <laughs> well, it works. I mean, you, you save right across. I mean, they save. They get a great story. Yep. They might have given us four reporters, say, from the New York Times for a year, which is, you know, great for us. Mm. Um, but they, you know... The, the front page of the New York Times for, say, Paradise Papers, which was our follow-up to Panama, you know, carried a photograph from Sweden from our Swedish media partner. You know, they they hired a drone, went up and photographed a ship. Mm, couldn't have, well, it could yeah. have happened, but it would have been all their expense. It, yeah, it's it's a pretty cost-effective way of working. Yeah, you know, I get that. I get that. Um, yes, tell us a little bit about the Paradise Papers, because that came after Panama. Just what, yeah. was, what was the leak? It was actually a bigger set of documents. We yeah. had 13 and a half million documents, again, from the offshore world. And they were from mostly from a, a firm called Appleby, which um, was much more high-end than Mossack Fonseca. So while Mossack Fonseca was happy to have dictators as clients, um, these guys were happy to have you know Nike and Uber and you know Facebook and people like that for clients. So it was a very different story right. and a very different way of looking at the world. I mean, one of their clients was the Queen, for instance, of England. And um, and what was interesting about that was that she um, you know doesn't get taxed because she's the Queen, but mm. she was still investing in offshore entities. And some of those entities, well, one of them in particular was actually a predatory lending firm. So here you had the Queen of England making money from her own subjects. Um, 
and then didn't have to pay a tax, but was was hiding basically through offshore entities. Now, whether she knew or not, of course, is the big question. We don't know the answer to that. We don't know, but I guess you could argue that she should have known. Yes, well, yeah. it's, it, it's ostensibly, as you say, it's her money. That's her money, but she's also, I mean, you've got to have the moral argument here. Should she be benefiting from... Predatory lending practices. Exactly. Yeah, did that get broken? That got broken in the UK, was it? It was yeah. huge in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we have, have the BBC be. and The Guardian in the UK as our, as our media partners. Another argument for the Republic then. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but I think it's very important. I mean, this is all a public interest. I think there's no point in us just publishing um, basic, you know, details. We get, like, in these big data leaks, there's every kind of information. There's mm. there's your passport details, there's mm. your bank account details, there's sometimes there's even your passwords to your bank accounts. We don't think that that kind of information should be public, mm. but we do think that very basic information that is in the public interest ought to be public. Who makes you know? that decision? You, ultimately. Well, ultimately I do, but we also, because we're working collectively you also get a much bigger, better perspective for a story because you're able to, people see things differently. So when you have foreign reporters working on something, they all bring something else to the table. And I think you do end up doing much better journalism. You know, we have like big debates inside the the forums about what is a story, what isn't a story, is this person important, Mm. why isn't that person important? You know, we found Bono from U2, for instance, one of our Lithuanian partners, found that, that he was investing through an offshore entity into and avoiding tax in Lithuania. Now, normally you'd think, well, that's just a, a superstar. Yeah, who wanders the world preaching good yeah. things and is a Christian except, and what have you. Well, except that Bono is the head of the One Campaign, which is a, a global media campaign against offshore tax havens. So here oh. he is. Again, it's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. Here, here's somebody, you know, he ended up having to pay tax. It was very embarrassing for One because they somehow had found out that we were publishing the Paradise Papers and had organized an entire campaign around it. But Bono hadn't told him <laughs> that, he was being, that he was asked, being asked questions by, by our media partners. So just, um, just those fine moral lines, I mean, how do you sniff out, I suppose? I mean, let's cut to the chase. Some journos have agendas. If, for instance, you may be a pro-Republican agenda, you get hold of everything, you, oh my God, that's, the Queen is a tax evader type thing, or investing in predatory and affirm that the practices predatory lending practices how do you um and then the temptation of course is oh my god I've, I've got the queen how do you sort of bring that back a bit is that sort of the thing that happens that's yeah, a natural you, i mean i'll give you a, a very good example of that so one of the first names that i saw in the panama papers uh, in munich on day one was the prime minister of iceland yeah and so on the surface, it looked, oh, great, we've got the Prime Minister of Iceland here. Yeah. And um, and I thought at the time, well, there was a big controversy over the Icelandic banks failing. This is probably a story. But I also looked very closely at it and realized that, that the Prime Minister, when he registered this particular company offshore, he wasn't a politician. It was before he became a politician. He was a businessman. Yeah. So we were also potentially looking at something that wasn't a story. It took a lot of work to get that bit of information Um into a story. And the, the history behind that was that we didn't know anybody in Iceland. We knew it was a very small country. We knew that if we picked the wrong journalist, that it was likely that straight the prime minister the would fight straight yeah. away. Yeah. Mm. So we went to our Swedish media partners who we'd worked with before and said, do you know anyone in Iceland? Mm. And they recommended this guy, Johannes. And Johannes basically, when he was brought into the circle, realized that he needed to quit work for a year and work on this 
in isolation because if anyone found out what he was working on, there were a lot of Icelandic names in the, in the Panama Papers. And of course, this was the biggest one. And so he basically lived off the earnings of his wife for a year, disappeared from society, um, had to keep making excuses, a huge risk for somebody. And we... You know, we were giving him a story. Remember, and he had to sit on that story. You can imagine if you're oh an investigative God. reporter having to sit on a story the for nine The one that was going to bring down the prime minister. Well, potentially. Mm-hmm. Where it became a story is that he researched this company and he actually went through all of the records of the Icelandic banks and he found that one of the creditors of the banks was this offshore entity, Wintress. And of course, unless you knew that Wintress was the prime minister's company, it didn't make any sense. But it was the, again, it was a hypocrisy. Here's a guy who's been elected to sort out the bank collapse, who has a financial interest in what he's actually doing. That's why he had to resign. What a remarkable snippet. Did he get compensated for a year of... of living in a cave or what we did? No, he set up a little non-profit for the media in, in Reykjavik and that's what he's doing now. He's, he's, he's you know, right. I mean, I'll I tell you an even better story about him because, you know, when he was suffering through this and we really felt his suffering and so at one point I flew to Iceland to see him and to sit down really just to calm him down mm-hmm. and, and, and meet his wife and ensure his wife that this was going to be worth it and, uh, and I said of you know, I was trying to flatter him, I guess, in a way. And I said, you know, Hannes, when this comes out, you're going to be the most famous journalist in Iceland. And he just laughed at me and said, Jared, I'm already the most famous <laughs> journalist in Iceland. Where's the upside? <laughs> <laughs> right. So I'll be the most famous and the poorest journalist in, in uh, Iceland. But well, anyway. he, he suffered a lot afterwards. I mean, He's he had people hero. obviously um, congratulating him on the story, but he also had people chasing him down the supermarket, well, shouting at him. So yeah, yeah. it's a very small place. Small place, that's yeah. right. You're listening to The Fourth Estate, where journalists talk journalism, and our guest is Jared Ryle, the director of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, famed for the Paradise and Panama Papers, but a lot more besides. So, uh, Jared, what's the next project for the ICIJ, the next big hit? I would imagine you get asked every day to reveal the truth about President Trump's tax uh, Affairs, yeah. For instance, if well, I think if I had a story on Trump, it would be the biggest story in the world, and we'd be going after it. But I, I can't tell you what we're working on, but I can say that we are working at the moment with 250 reporters from 36 countries, from 58 different media outlets, and we're working on something that's got nothing to do with tax or offshore, <laughs> which might be a relief. <laughs> which could be anything. Yeah, um, could be anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm assuming it involves corruption. Um, it involves something I think that um, is a underreported area that people need to know about. I, mean, I hate to be so vague about it, but we're we're really what we're what we're trying to do this time is is um, do something that is, does not involve a leak, but to put in practice something that we've been thinking about a long time. There's an awful lot of information out there in the public mm. that journalists aren't using, and so we are building our own data set, and we've gone through about seven to 9 million records that we've now gathered from around the world, from freedom of information requests, from public sources, from other things, and we've turned them into a database. Mm-hmm. And we've let the journalists go crazy on the database. And also... You know, Vague subject being... Well, something that is, I think, uh, affects at least one in 10 people. So it's definitely a public interest. Okay, well, okay. <laughs> well, we won't play this guessing game for much longer because the show's not long enough. But um, uh, when you go around the world... Uh, you know, you spend a lot of time with journalists. Um, how would you summarize the mood of journalism? And we, you know, we on this show we talk a lot about the constant attacks on journalists. You know, we obviously have the, what the United States president says all the time, but they, he's not alone. And 
wherever you go, really, in whatever region, you Hungary, Philippines, you, know, you name it. Um, what do you think the mood of journalism is, if, that's, uh, if you can sort of summarize the activity of several hundred thousand people? Well, there's a lot of concern about some things. Um, for instance, the number of journalists getting killed seems yep. to be, at least in the public eye, is going up. Um, and it's not that journalists are suddenly being killed when they weren't being killed. I mean, if you know, our reporters in Mexico, for instance, I mean, yeah, it's the most dangerous country in the world to be a reporter. But you've seen, and we have experienced this directly ourselves, that a lot of reporters, well, I'll say a lot of reporters, at least three reporters are now being killed in Europe. Um, and mm. Europe is not a place you expect journalists to be killed. Mm. Um, well, I have the situation in uh, Malta. So, yeah, which was yeah. directly uh, affected us. Um, yeah. The, you know, ICIJ, we, you know, we don't just employ um, traditional journalists as people you would say. We also have computer programmers because mm. we really believe in using technology. And the person who wrote the program that allowed the Panama Papers to be seen um, was Matthew Caruana Gazile. And his mother was blown up in Malta. So she... Um, after we published the Panama Papers, she was a very well-known blogger there. Mm. She took up some of the information that we'd published online and also published. Um, there were some connections we couldn't make. She went and got her own sources and then started publishing further stories. And, and for her troubles, she, well, again, we're not sure it was related to the Panama Papers directly, but, she, yeah, yeah. but about a year ago she was blown up. Mm. So uh, the mood is uh, defiant? I think, yeah, the other side is, I think, um, Trump, um, yeah. Donald Trump, the U.S. president, has actually made journalism more relevant mm. in many ways, which, mm. you know, even though people might be alarmed by some of the things he's doing, it's really an era where people are also able to see the relevance of news mm. reporting. Trump is good for journalism in some He ways. has been good for journalism in some ways, yes, mm. absolutely. And you can't, you can't ignore that. The relevance of journalism, you know, we are now more relevant than ever. Mm. It's just that there are so many problems out there. The business models are broken. Um, journalists are getting killed. There seems to be this, um, you know, again, Trump seems to be encouraging uh, attacks on journalism, whether it be physical attacks or whether it just be, you know, attacks of saying that news is fake and other things. Um, but again, I would argue that working with 400 journalists from, you know, 80 different countries is very hard to argue against what you end up publishing because mm. if they're all looking at the same documents and they all come to the same conclusions, it's very hard to call it fake news. Oh, yeah. No, and it's one of the ways of, of beating the bastards, as it were. Yeah. Um, just quick, I'm going to let you go, we, but I just want to ask you quickly, uh, ICIJ is a not-for-profit, as you say. When you travel the world, do you find profitable news media organizations or is it really are we heading towards this future where not-for-profits is probably the most successful model i no, i don't think not-for-profit is the model because you've got to keep looking for a check and that's very hard yeah that's I what think you spend your life doing isn't it? Y you or, spend a lot of your time doing that yes mm. absolutely so i think you've got to i think what's happening here is that the non-profit um, world is experimenting and we're able to, you know, try new things. Some some work, some don't. Mm -hmm. I certainly know of two organizations that are profitable, that media part I mentioned before yep. in France and also an organization in South Korea called News Tapa. And they have convinced 30,000 people to give them um, a, a certain amount of money every yep. month. And they're able to, in fact, they're they're doing so well, they even now contribute to ICIJ. They write us a check every year as a thanks. How good is that? Um, but, you know, but you'll see like the Guardian, for instance, is now going down this mo this way and asking people to contribute. Oh, yes. Absolutely. It's, um, so it is kind of an experimental um, 
it's like a sandbox at the moment. Mm. Um, but you know, again, I would say in India there are very successful commercial models that mm. are going. Um, it's just that it's, I guess, the old West and the old the old models that are that are suffering. Mm. Oh well, that's. Uh, I'm very personally, I'm very optimistic that out of this sandbox, some great things will come. And ICIJ has sort of, in a way, led the led the way. Uh, that's about it from the Fourth Estate this week. Um, I can't thank you enough, Jared, for spending some time with us. Thank you. No, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, uh, so that's Gerald Ryle, the head of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Watch out for the next. Oh, by the way, when is that coming? Roughly the next big one. <laughs> It'll be very soon. The next soon. couple of weeks. Actually, next couple of weeks. Okay, watch out, watch out, and we'll be seeing it in this fine country as well. Will we? You've yes, got a partner um, in Australia. Yeah, we're, with the, we're at the Financial Review and the ABC. Oh, excellent. Yeah. There you go. Who says that Fairfax and Nine and won't be cooperating with the ABC now that it's part of Nine or almost part of Nine? Anyway, that's another issue, another story. Uh, again, thank you for listening. Uh, if make sure you subscribe to the Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app, so you can hear us talk media politics and a few things in between. Uh, at will when you want to do we'll be back very soon uh, and but in the meantime you can stay in touch with us on facebook or twitter our handle is fourth estate au uh, another thanks to my fabulous producer anthony dockerell my name is peter Frey, and thanks very much for listening 